All right, gang, so just a quick heads up. Uh, instead of doing what I've been promising for ages, which is to get around to that audiobook, instead I went ahead and compiled all 10 years of the Blue Skies writing that I did and put it together in a fucking book. It's going to go on Amazon here real damn quick, listed as the Lunatic Fringe book. You'll be able to find it in pretty much any of the marketplaces that Amazon has. It is literally every single word I ever wrote from that magazine, and it's all put together in nice book form. You can buy it in ebook, you can buy it in paperback, and believe it or not, you can even buy it in fucking hardback. Uh, again, it's going to be available here really, really soon. This one not only includes all the articles that were in the first fucking pilot book, but about 60 more articles. It's got 350 or so pages of some pretty funny, inappropriate, and hopefully informative shit. So check it out. Blue skies cool. They seduce us, pulling us irresistibly upwards, reminding us to fly our own line, on our wings, and in life. We are the seekers, adventurers, being one with the air, feeling everything and nothing at once. That's the magic we chase. Follow the call. Find your pure wild flight with NZ Aerosports. Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model, or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia, as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy, specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, 
Once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, and is as is my way now, I'm going to dive right into it. So, who the fuck are you, and what do you do? Thanks, man. My name is Pete Allen, and um, what do I do? Right now, I split my time between coaching FS, four-way mostly, a bit of load organizing, and the other 50% is flight one. like to... Uh, keep my hand in with as many disciplines as, uh, as I can. I'm like, like learning new stuff. Uh, I still compete on a four way team and, uh, yeah, I've been skydiving since I was 15 years old. I mean, that kind of sounds like the perfect recipe for keeping that interest in the sport, right? Is, is going at it from every angle that you can. It, especially as I get older, it's like I was, I did four way and I still do four way. I've done it for over 35 years or something, but in order to stay interested, I can't just do four way. I mean, I have to do other things as well, you know. So, uh, like last uh, six months ago, I started wingsuiting for the very first time. And How amazing what, what is that? Fun. What fun! Yeah, yeah. I can't um, think. I, I struggle to think of a sport that allows the kind of longevity that we have in skydiving, and not just to be able to continue to do it, but to remain relevant. Coke burner, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. I mean, uh, just I, I, I follow other sports and I do other sports, and I mean. Kelly Slater, everyone's talking about him in the surfing world. And, oh, my God, I mean, the guy is just uh, an absolute hero. But in skydiving, you can just change your discipline or stick within the same discipline. You can keep going for a super long time. Maybe not with dynamic two and four-way in the tunnel. I think that's like an age-limiting thing from sure. what I understand so far. But pretty much the other disciplines, like listening to you chat to Al the other day, um, like he's doing uh, standard accuracy and things like that, you know, well on yeah. you get to kind of dive into every area of it which is really cool yeah. and uh, it's kind of funny that you bring up somebody like kelly slater because in my mind kelly slater is still that young punk guy that was taking <laughs> over the surfing scene but he's not Dating right Pamela anderson <laughs> right he's a yeah. he's he's the old guard he's an old dude now yeah. but I, I don't know where mm -hmm. the fuck that happened <laughs> Yeah, maybe somewhere where our gray hairs went as well, man. Right, right. I know. There keeps more of them all the time. So I want to jump you all the way back. How did you get started, not necessarily just in skydiving, but in anything that would be considered maybe back in the day extreme? All right. Well, back in the day for me starts um, before I was like five or six years old because my mom and dad dragged me onto the drop zone at about that age. So I had really not many memories before being on the drop zone. Wow. I can totally blame my mum and dad for uh, opening my eyes to this environment. Um, and for a long time, they were um, a little bit ashamed with that. But I think now they're kind of supportive. Um, 
yeah, they dragged me onto the drop zone. I was that drop zone brat. I got in everyone's way. I wanted to know everything. I learned to pack parachutes before I made my first jump. I packed my first canopy and um, I basically badgered them until they took me for my first jump at 15. Wow. And uh, as far as, yeah, I actually quit skydiving though. I quit skydiving at the tender age of 16. I thought, <laughs> I'm done with this stuff. This stuff is so boring. I've done it my whole life long. <laughs> and uh, I went for like a, a six month sabbatical and got into too many adventures, decided that skydiving was probably way safer for me and uh, came back to it and have never left it since that age. Yeah. That's one of the funniest things that you try to explain to people that don't understand <laughs> our sport or our world is that in our world, the safest thing that we do is jump out of planes. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you, and, but you can't, people can't wrap their heads around that. How can that be the mm -hmm. safest thing? And then they meet a bunch of skydivers and realize that when we don't get to uh, jump out of planes is when the stupid stuff happens. Yeah. The, the type A personalities and everything that we are, it means that as soon as you leave us alone with some bad weather and uh, yeah, things just go south very quickly. So growing up as a, as a mm -hmm. skydiving kid, um, Obviously, you saw a lot more than just the jumping. Uh, looking back mm -hmm. on all of that, that whole lifestyle is is really infectious, right? I mean, yeah, I, I can yeah. I, I can imagine you deciding that you wouldn't want to jump, but it, it's got to be very difficult to separate yourself from the kind of freedom that you have in our lifestyle. Well, because it's the norm for me, because skydiving was the norm for me as a kid or that environment. And as you say, the culture is the whole reason why we're still in it to this mm. day. I mean, the, the activity itself is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But um, the lifestyle that we have, the friends that we meet and the journeys that it takes us uh, is what keeps us within the sport. And um, so, sorry, go, go, your question was um, about, remind just me, sorry, I just... No, no, no. Just the, the, the lifestyle in general. I mean, you, you say that as a kid, it was just kind of normal to you. But looking back on it, it's not a yeah. normal lifestyle. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, thank you. You just got me back on track there. So, um, yeah, basically, I thought that I could go outside and find something that was more exciting, more extreme and more adventurous. Sure. And and yes, maybe those things were there, but they were just missing that keep the glue that comes with skydiving. And the activity, I guess, is the glue. It's what keeps us all linked in together. But um, I found it yeah, very hard to find anything that would match up to that. And we've seen it, I think, within, uh, within our careers. We've seen many people, as they say, cut away from regular life and, and come into this world. And, and then what a wonderful world they find within it. Like we all, Everyone always tells me, told me when I was a kid growing up, when are you going to get a proper job? And to this day, I just recently spoke to someone. They said, do you remember that when everyone said that? I'm like, yep. And my mom and dad, for the longest time, or even being skydivers, were like, when are you going to get a proper job? <laughs> and, and I don't never wanted a proper job. I never, ever wanted that amount of money, that amount of responsibility outside of skydiving. But sure. within skydiving, um, I think myself and others have just found so many different paths that allow us to, uh, to live a life that is full, rich. And uh, yeah, it keeps us wanting to get up that next morning and wanting to get on the bike and ride the two minutes down the road to the drop zone. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, and it's it's kind of funny, especially over the last few years when COVID hit and the whole world has kind of been turned upside down. I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like our secret kind of got revealed a little bit because I had so many friends that lived in the real world that had no clue what was coming yeah. next. And all of my skydiver friends were like, yeah, we'll be all right. We'll be fine. It's, we'll, we'll get through it. It's not because we've done the feast or famine. What drop zone is next? What country is next? Our whole lives. Completely. That that going back to zero. Um, 
people find it hard to comprehend that I've actually got the change jar, looked in the bottom, seen how much is there a number of times to see what we're going to eat that night. Yeah. And it never felt bad. It never, I mean, there may have been a few moments of worry every so often, but it was always just like, you know what? We're just going to put our heads together. We're going to, you know, we'll make this thing work. Sure. You're absolutely right. I think most of us, um, I mean, obviously a lot of people suffered during the pandemic and, and I wouldn't want to wish that on anyone, but it gave a lot of us skydivers a chance just to press pause for a second and appreciate how damn lucky we were. Absolutely. We yeah. And a number of the people that I've interviewed have have gone out of their way to say that during the pandemic was the first time that they spent really quality time with family and friends outside of the sport, that they really valued that opportunity. And it also yeah. gave them the opportunity to really miss just how good we've got it in that I don't mm-hmm. need a shitload of money or the fancy car or all this if I get to drive to the drop zone and have more fun than anybody with piles of money could ever have. Yeah. Right. Um, and it was the it was the last few months before my daughter, my youngest daughter, left to go to university. Hmm. So it was perfect. I got to spend the time with my with my wife and my daughter in the house, kind of just making sure we got to know each other before we all kind of spread to the winds again. Yeah. Sure, sure. Now, how many kids do you have? I have two, two daughters. Yeah. Do they do they jump? Are they into the sport? Um, one is very much involved in the sport. Uh, she runs a marketing agency called The Edge. And uh, herself, um, Holly, Holly Blue Allen is my daughter's name. She runs, uh, yeah, does a lot of the marketing, social media side for various uh, pantheons in the industry like PD, um, UPT, etc. Uh, the other one has zero interest in skydiving. She did about eight to 10 hours of tunnel uh, growing up, was a complete natural at it and just thought, man, that's boring. I'll go and do my own thing if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, which is, which is amazing. I have, I have no problem with either viewpoint, you know, and, and, more and more as a parent. Are you a parent? I am, yes. You are. You, you know that the best thing, that the best feeling that you can have is when you see your kids happy. Absolutely. Like to you, that you've just won the gold medal at the world meet 10 times over when you see that smile and when you have that feeling. So, sure. Yeah, they're, it, they're both happy, yeah. It was it was funny for me as when my daughter was quite young, I was actually working at uh, Skydive Cross Keys during its heyday uh, when it was yeah. just absolutely out of control. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I hope she never wants to get into this sport, not because of the jumping, but because our community was so much fun and so cool, but so irresponsible at the same time that I yeah. was terrified that this little kid... And she yeah. grew up, and she's actually next week graduates from law school, having made a couple of jumps with no wow. real interest in it. And I'm like, oh my god, it's the goal! I won the gold medal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that being said, too, the the families that I've seen that have multiple generations that are jumpers have such an amazing experience as well. And I mean, I can think of huge names in the sport where it's not just one, but two or even three generations that continue to jump. And there's a bond there that is just an amazing thing. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's kind of a trick that I asked you about kids as well, because funny enough, uh, your daughter Holly is also my boss. No way. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. She did mention that one time. I remember last year that uh, yeah. you do a bunch of copy and stuff. Yeah, I do some copywriting <laughs> stuff for her. Talking about your work for a second, I know I know this is supposed to be talking to me, but I just heard, I, I listened to one of your episodes, one with Al, because he's like one of my heroes. I think sure. He's an amazing chap. Yeah. Um, the, at the beginning, there was an ad for your book, like a combination of all your writing over the last few yes. years. Yeah. I'm really, I'm going to buy that, man. I, I really, I, I'm a historian within the sport and to have an opportunity to have all that stuff in one place. Yeah. 
Oh, I, one of your customers. You're not going to have to yeah. buy it. I'm going to have to make sure and get you a copy of it. You're taking the time no, to sit down and talk one. to me. This is the, <laughs> this is also the super cool thing about our sport, right? Is you and I have never met before, no. uh, but it's such well, a... I don't su- think so. Yeah, but well, I, you, you said you were in Cross Keys. Yeah. We, we were sponsored by John Eddowes um, in the late 90s, early thousands. Well, I don't know when were you there. I'm sure our paths may have crossed. I was there to late 2003 to 2006. Just missed you. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's kind of funny again. Go. It's such a small sport because if I don't know you, I know ten people that do, right? It's just it's mm-hmm. it's a half a degree of separation between people. Yeah. So it's very funny too when you see that name and you're like, wait a second, I may have talked to them or I might work for his daughter. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's this very very cool thing, and it, it's it's something yeah. else that binds that sport together so well. It really does. Um, yeah, but yeah, I had a non. Non skydiver asking me about uh, about the sport, and I said it. And it was like, this morning. It was the guy that I ride to every month or so to pick up my freshly roasted coffee beans in the morning, mm. and because uh, he buy, I buy like a gram of this, um, you know, of uh, this stuff, and it lasts me through the next month or so. And he's like, "What is it about the sport?" And I'm like, "Well, it's like that family thing. Like wherever we go, wherever we took our daughter, my wife and I. Let's say we went to Australia for." a trip or New Zealand, we'd come off a plane after having been on that plane for 12 hours. And within a few hours, she would be finding someone that she knew, you know, this, this five or six year old kid is like, Oh yeah, I know you. I met you just the other day doing something else. Yep. And yeah, it's, it's yeah. Incredible. And, and my summer's full of travel now and I'm looking forward to that summer full of travel. Um, not just for the skydiving, not just the events, not just for the work, but it's like, Oh yeah, I'll be catching up with so-and-so and him and her. Itself. Well, and that's the cool thing too, right? Is it's not the people that you're intentionally going to see. It's the hundred that you bump into that you weren't thinking about that you turn out to be shocked and happy that you're seeing again. You know, yeah. it's the, mm-hmm. the, not the single serving friends, but the people you hung out with maybe the quarter of that one summer way back when, and you've got these mm-hmm. amazing stories that lasted this long. And now, bam, here you are back together again, being able to relive it and then make new memories. And it just keeps happening over and over and over again. Just, just last week on the drop zone here at Skydive Emporia Brava, um, this guy showed up and I'm like, no way. I taught his AFF like in the late 80s. And he said <laughs> he, he's quit a couple of times. And for his 60th birthday present, he decided to come back into the sport, did a refresher and everything. And he said, the reason I'm back is the times that we had there. And I remember that trip. Like the weather was pretty bad in the UK. As that's one of the reasons why I left. Mm. That's where I'm from originally. And um, if the weather was bad towards the end of the AFF course, we'd say, hey, Grab your passport, jump in my VW van. We're going to drive down to the south of France and finish your AFS course down there. <laughs> and he was on one of those trips. So for him, he was like, he, his mind was blown just by hanging out with a bunch of skydivers for right. as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. That period. Uh, and that, and his, he, they said, that's the reason why I'm back right now. It's like, you know, why would I not want to do this thing? It's given me so much joy. Absolutely. Well, and I had uh, kind of experiences like that. I started out in Las Vegas. That was a tandem factory, but Paris Valley is just a few hours away. And uh, I remember that first invite with the real skydivers that I got to go down mm. to Paris Valley and jump out of an otter. And oh, my God. And, and it was yeah. uh, I can't tell you all that much about the jumps, but I can tell you everything about what I was thinking and how amazing it was to me and what the guys were mm-hmm. like and how they helped me out. And, and it was just that whole experience. And then when I decided to travel, making a telephone call and getting a job to go throw drugs in Fiji because I had the experience wow. and knew a couple of people, right? I mean, what, <laughs> what a, a world. Draw to the open. So right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to be able yeah. to do stuff like that is so incredible. So incredible. Yeah. Now, what was yeah, your first 
what was your first gig working in the sport? Like, how did you, how did you start making your name in it? Uh, I started instructing. So I started, well, no, I started on the packing mat. Well, hmm. we didn't have packing mats back then. We had packing tables because we were jumping around parachutes. Sure. And every weekend, 20, 30 people would show up for a static line um, first jump course. Uh, and I would help with the course, take people through PLFs. I've probably done more PLFs than uh, paratrooper. And um, in, we'd pack all the rigs. Uh, and as soon as possible, I got my instructor's rating. It just seemed like the way that I could keep this, uh, keep the environment going. Um, in the UK, we had static line instruction. That was the main thing back then. In 1984, um, I met up with a guy. Well, actually, it was on my, um, my the eight-way team, the British eight-way team. And he said, there's this new thing called AFF, and I want you to go out to the USA, get your, get your qualification, and we're going to be the first full-time AFF school in the UK. Wow. So, um, yeah, 20, 21 years old, jumped on the plane, first trip to, went to Rayford, North Carolina, first trip to the US, met Gene Paul and the boys at, uh, at Rayford, and did my AFF course uh, as an instructor, got the instructor's rating, which, um, which kind of started me off. And I, I love teaching. I love doing AFF. Uh, and with Brian back in the UK, we pretty much started the first full-time UK AFF school. That's awesome. I got my tandem rating after that as well. So tandem in the 80s, um, a couple of thousand tandems. And I stopped doing that about 20 years ago. Um, just, yeah, I love doing AFF. Really enjoyed tandems because they weren't the big thing that it is now. It really felt like a way to introduce people to skydiving. Sure. So every tandem I made, I felt like this is my opportunity to show you how much fun I get to have. And uh, I've got, I still, I can remember to this day, I remember a blind guy I took for a tandem. He was a blind priest. Mm. And um, God, that sounds like the said, beginning of a joke. <laughs> it does. So anyway, this is plan <laughs> Yeah. My wife's Irish. She tells a way better story than I do. But, <laughs> but back to the blind priest. Uh, he said to me, he said, like, obviously I can't see what's going on. So I just want you to tell me everything that's going on. Mm. And I just talked him through the whole experience. Even in free fall, he said, just put your head, you know, close to my ear and just tell me what's going on. And yeah, just the, the you know what it's like. You've sure. taken, you know, you've done tandems and, and just that feeling of joy of sharing, uh, of sharing that with someone. It um, really is. I mean, oh, it's, it's the yeah. ability to run around and tell people how cool your life is. <laughs> this is so amazing. And I want to share this with you and show you, and then you get to see how cool your yeah. life is on someone else's face. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, then I, I got into competition skydiving. So I had that moment, like you said, where some friends call you and say, come skydive with us. And at the time, it was my heroes, uh, Symbiosis. They were the British four-way team and eight-way team mm. back in the 70s and 80s in the UK. So I got a call and said, would you like to come and join us on the team? Now, I had their pictures on my wall as a kid. Hmm. Like I remember staring at pictures of them at World Championships and going, one day, I'm going to be doing that. And then I got the call and I was, that was probably the last proper job that I ever had. I was working in a bar in London and um, someone's manager said, Hey Pete, you got a phone call. Ran over to the bar and it was Rob, Rob Culpus. He said, so you want to join us on the team? And even now the hairs are just jumping up. <laughs> and, and yeah. And then, but so the competition started, we, my first year we won nationals. We went to the world meet and we had an, a coach back then, a guy called Scott Meek, who was in the US eight-way team. He was the inventor of the formation that we call the Meeker in Foy, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I just had this understanding that, wow, you can actually coach. You could maybe even 
make some money doing this as well. So that next year, someone asked me if I would coach their four-way team. And then I did more and more coaching. Um, so the AFF and Tandem kind of went to the side a little bit. And uh, I put my effort into the competition side of things mm. and teaching. Yeah. Sure. Well, which is, I mean, and both sides of that coin are absolutely amazing. Obviously, there's that incredible thrill and joy of passing it on to someone that's never experienced it before. And most likely, odds are we'll never do it again. And then there's mm -hmm. passing on that knowledge with people that are just desperate to get more and more and better and better. And both of those sides of that coin are just amazing. Yeah. I mean, being a coach is you're teaching people who want to listen. Yeah. I don't know about you, Dean, but I didn't enjoy school at all. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I pretty much ran away at 15. And, um, but that's another story. And uh, now when, um, you know, when I say I think about it as I'm a teacher, it's like how rare to have a class of people that's totally engaged with what you do. Uh, and it's actually in the last 20 years that I went back to school. And, mm. um, when, you know, whenever I've had some downtime doing some distance learning, um, just kind of, if I'm interested in a subject, I don't have to go and do a degree course. Now you can just go and audit something online, Sure, uh, which is truly amazing with this modern world. I mean, we do live in pretty phenomenal times as far as information gathering. Absolutely. Well, and that's something that I found out as well as I get older. I, I hated school and it wasn't because I wasn't good at it. It's because it was boring. It didn't interest me. There was nothing engaging about it. And I mm. would sit in class thinking of all the things I would rather be doing than listening to something that I thought meant nothing to me. And now mm. I go out of my way to try and learn new things. And I'm a voracious reader. Yeah, and sure. I love all this stuff because it's you get to pick what engages you and you get to go after <laughs> what you like instead of having something shoved down your throat. Yeah. Which is yeah, nice. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, if I was a surfer, I would have been drawing waves when I was a kid, but I was a skydiver. So I just drew skydives all day long on my notebook. All my margins are all full of skydives and parachutes and everything. So when you're a little kid and your parents are jumping out of airplanes and you're the drop zone brat, uh, what did the other kids think? I mean, were you like the cool kid because you got to hang out and see all this crazy stuff or, or were you picked on because you did weird stuff? Yeah, more of the latter, I would say. I mean, being an only child, I was pretty solitary. I'm kind of, kind of an independent type. And I didn't really share that side of my life too much. It was very mm. few people that knew what my parents did or what I went to do at the weekends. It was kind of kind of my secret, and I was super happy to keep it that way. Fair enough. Uh, and there were enough, there were enough drop zone kids that, you know, at the drop zone that were, became such better buddies because we shared the same nerdishness if you like about skydiving sure sure now one other question i had for you skydiving is maybe it's just because of my perspective on it as an american skydiver but skydiving is soaked with brits you guys are everywhere what is it about brits that draws you guys to skydiving so much or is it just me being annoyed that you guys come over with the accents and get all the girls probably the latter mate but yeah <laughs> never mind <laughs> no <laughs> You know, it's a good question. Um, we have a very healthy skydiving scene in the UK. Yes. Like super healthy. There are lots of drop zones. And for many years, we would go to the drop zone. And if we got to jump, man, that was a bonus. Sure. We knew that we'd be driving or hitchhiking or catching the bus or the train to the drop zone. And we'd be hanging out with our buddies for the weekend. And even to this day, that's what people do. I mean, obviously, nowadays, people are checking apps and, you know, deciding whether to go there or, or somewhere else. But um, I, I think it, it's created a real, um, like, and, and then oh, all the magazines. So you go to the drop zone 
and there would be piles of old magazines which you would just rifle through 16 millimeter projector would go up we'd watch um you know wings carl banish's films i got to meet carl banish in england mm. he came and dropped stopped by our drops in on the way so yeah he got he showed us his films and talked us through um so i think yeah for brit and then of course the weather's so bad that um you're not going to stay there if you really want to skydive so sure. that's why you see a lot of us i mean we escape to warmer climes yeah. sure well, I, I remember thinking it was so funny. Again, I'll, I'll fall back to Cross Keys, which I talk about on the podcast all the time. I was one of the few Americans at the time that was working at this drop zone in the middle of New Jersey. You said yourself the first place that you ever went in the United States is Rayford, North Carolina, right? I mean, that's not that's literally the last place anyone would think you would end up going for the first time, unless you're a skydiver, in which case you're like, fuck, yeah, I'm going to go to Rayford. Yeah, I'm going. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. It's <laughs> yeah. a badass place. But I end up in, in Cross Keys with, you know, Irishmen and a couple of Brits from different parts of, of England, and everybody's got their own unique accent, and it's just this very vibrant culture that moves itself to shithole New Jersey to jump out of airplanes. And I remember sitting there thinking, how can I feel like I'm an alien in this place? It's my country, but I'm the only American. And then years and years later, I ended up again in, in Fiji and overstayed my visa and ended up an illegal alien, which was my favorite part of the entire thing because half of the Bet. people I knew in Cross Keys were illegal because <laughs> uh. they, they just stayed past their visa and kept jumping. <laughs> so I always yeah. thought that was thoroughly entertaining, but it, it was always curious to me. And no matter where I've gone in the world, I've never been to a drop zone that doesn't have at least a few Brits jumping there. At least a couple of Brits, yeah. yeah. I mean, New Jersey, as you say, we, we'd go there during the summer. And New Jersey on a bad day is 10 times better than most places in the UK on sure. a good day. Sure. I mean, really, the whole Americana thing as well for Brits, you know, uh, you know, post-war Britain, whatever, you know, just it's, America was the promised land and, sure. and still is for many things. You know, um, I still love going over there. I lived, I lived there for 20 years. Yeah. I lived in Florida for 20 years. And, wow. and that definitely smoothed my accent out. It never, it's never become Floridian, but it definitely smoothed. <laughs> Made it a little more mid-Atlantic. It's just so funny because anywhere outside the sport, if you talk about places like Rayford, North Carolina, or Florida, or all the places that skydivers yeah. consider these wonderful places, the rest of the world is like, you went where? Really? Iris Valley. Yeah. <laughs> P-E-R-R-I-S, what? Yeah. Oh, I, I actually just had a conversation with someone not too long ago about Paris Valley. And, of course, it sounds very exotic, but the Paris of my memory outside of the mm. drop zone was the scariest fucking place in all of California. We were warned, right? When we went there, we were warned to, to stay in your car. Don't leave the drop zone. Don't, you yeah. don't leave the drop zone. You know, and you'd stay in one of the trailers in what they called the ghetto at Paris Valley, but mm. it was the nicest part of Paris Valley. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I've been yeah. told it's been a bit gentrified now and it's quite a bit nicer now. I haven't been back to Paris in many, many years. Uh, but still, my memories of that place are, are very unique in that respect. I have similar wonderful memories. Uh, we went over in the um, early 90s to get trained by Dan BC. We got in, we put the whole team um, and their girlfriends and we drove from uh, Florida all the way across I-10 to Paris in 48 hours, Oof. rolled out of the truck with beer cans and everything. <laughs> and uh, Dan was like, I'll see you guys back in 24 hours when you've uh, got over the travel. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then he trained us. And I have to say some some fun, fun memories with, with the team Air Moves. Uh, right, it was right before that horrific accident happened. Sure. We were there that, uh, that period. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I, obviously, I, I I wasn't there and don't know a lot about the accident other than what I've read about it. But uh, that's one of those cautionary tales that um, is a, a great lesson to pass on to younger jumpers as well, knowing just how bad things can go and how sideways it can get, but also how well an operation and the people there can recover from it, right? I mean... Paris Valley showed a lot of heart because holy shit, that was something. That was like uh, the biggest, like a baseball bat blow to their head for them. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, watching them come back, watching them put in that memorial garden in, and Dan being like the figurehead for that whole recovery process, you know? Well, and he's um, such a yeah. rock star. I mean, to still, again, we talked about it at the very beginning, to still be so incredibly valid uh, in the mm. sport and such a driving force in the sport all these years later just goes to show that really age mm. doesn't have a whole lot to do with the majority of the sport. Yeah. So as a bit of a segue, you mentioned about the younger jumpers and, and all that, but if we don't share the history, you know, if we don't talk about these things that went on, I think in the YouTube generation, the, the clickbait doom scrolling generation that we're in, you know, we're going to miss so much stuff. And, and I think a, a podcast, I love long form podcasts. I listen to a number of them from my other interests um, mm. as well as you know, a little bit within skydiving, but I think history, like putting together the book, uh, the magazines, when they go back that, you know, there's just, there's so much to be learned that, um, like, I don't know about you, but when I, when I start a different sport, I dive straight into the history. I get mm. the magazines. I want to know who the key figures were, why they were the key figures. And I want to go hang out in those places. I want to do those things and, and learn sure. and kind of suckle that up. Um, yeah. Well, so, I, I look at yeah. other extreme sports that uh, I was never really a part of, but was a fan of. And, you know, you talk about the big surfers or the snow skiers. Uh, Glenn mm. Plake was one of the big snow skiers or uh, he's still younger than me, but he's an OG. And the wake surfing was Parks Bonifay. Um, yeah. All these amazing names in these different sports. Yeah. And it's the history of it and the evolution of it. You know, Tony Hawk, I just watched an amazing documentary about his life. And that's mm -hmm. a guy that's he's my age. But you're watching this documentary of the great finale of the end of this man's career, and he's beat to shit, and he's having trouble even walking straight on some days. But the average skydiver that's been doing it longer than he's been skydiving or than skateboarding is still going strong. So yeah, and they're out running, they're doing yoga, they're looking after their health. They're maybe not spending so many nights around the campfire. You know? Right, right. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and, and it's. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I think, think we the, want it, We want to keep doing it for as long as possible. Maybe that's one of those things. Sure. Well, the sport seems to be. I mean, it's not a fountain of youth, but it sure a sip off of a bottle that was dipped in it, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, sure. I, I mean, all the way up to guys like Lou Sanborn, D one, mm -hmm. still jumping. I mean, holy shit, that's yeah. that's something else. I mean, that's some incredible longevity and just a, a, an amazing mm -hmm. history, or so to speak, of the sport. Uh, you had yeah. mentioned about the book and everything and, and uh, talking about the history and passing everything on. And when I put that book together originally, I almost edited some of my racier articles from, well, they would have been 15 years ago because mm -hmm. now in the, you know, the modern world, they're not nearly as acceptable and the jokes are a little too dark or a little too off color. Mm -hmm. And I stopped mm -hmm. myself from doing it because I thought, you know something? No. That's exactly what was going on then. And if someone reads this and decides to be offended at something that was written 15 or 20 years ago, 
I'm not concerned with what they think. I would rather be true to what it was then and stick to yeah. that history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's- Otherwise, we, we start editing history too much, you know, we're censoring. Yeah. And uh, it's important to realize, for people to realize how off color we were back then and how far we have come. Absolutely. Much, well, I don't think we're there yet, but with regards to inclusivity, especially, we're on our way, hopefully. Sure. You know, there's been some uh, some efforts out there to to work against that for sure. Absolutely. Or work for it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I've had a I've had and, a couple. Please go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, it's just because um, I, I spoke to the guys from Camp Unity on. Um, do you hear about those the, from a couple of years ago? They started up this trying to get a little more inclusivity within skydiving. Mm. No, yeah. please expand. And, uh, uh, okay, so their idea was, or not their idea, they were saying that, um, you know, we'd like to think that we're an inclusive sport, but you only have to look at advertising of our sport or life on the drop zone, how really we, we struggle a little bit with those things still. And, um, you know, we're, we can we can learn a, a lot from uh, listening to people and, and not immediately saying, well, you know, we don't see a problem. Well, you don't because you're white and you're 45 you know right (laughs) if you're a girl or if you're a person of color or if you have a different sexual preference um you know you may not feel so welcome on the drop zone sure uh, i think it's really cool that these people are reaching out and saying you have a place here just like everyone you know sure well and uh, it took me a long time to kind of turn a corner because i was a a a middle-class northern california white guy you know i was born and raised Mm -hmm. in the area right around san francisco in an area where you didn't have to think too much about it because you just saw everything and met everybody and so you kind of go into something like skydiving without that open-minded mindset set because you just assume uh and it wasn't until i started writing for blue skies and i was writing for laura and cola that it started to dawn on me oh wait women aren't as respected in the sport as they should be and mm-hmm. oh wait yeah. i only know three african-american skydivers and you start to go oh yeah that's maybe that's not so good and a lot of that has changed over the the 26 years that i've been in the sport which is a wonderful thing to see that happening yeah Yeah, but we do still have a ways to go oh yeah and i think um advertising is a really good thing to way to overcome that a friend of mine runs drop zone in the uk and he was saying it's had that same thought and he realized there's a lot of you know ethnic groups uh, especially in the uk and none of them were represented on skydiving advertising it was the white girl, the white guy, and sure. you know he's just starting to to say, yeah, this is a place for everyone. Yeah. Sure, I uh, I had an interview with a guy by the name of Brandon Johnson, who's uh, an African American skydiver, and it's the first time on the podcast we had ever talked about anything like that. And I've generally tried to stay away from anything that's going to piss people off or upset them. But I finally mm-hmm. asked him, I'm like, so what was it like being the black guy on on the drop zone? And and it was a very eye-opening conversation going yeah i was very aware that it was me you know i was i was the guy and Mm -hmm. obviously you and i don't know what that's like i'm a middle-aged white guy (laughs) you you don't get any more easygoing than that so it is very cool to see this progression and especially people pushing for change and inclusivity right i mean because Mm -hmm. let's get more people to play with (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I don't I don't yeah. care what your color or gender or uh, affiliation of anything yeah. is. Let's just go skydive. <laughs> Get in the plane. I mean, yeah, I, I have to say I uh, that that whole thing, you know, fly like a girl. I always saw that as the biggest compliment in the world. You mean fly so, with someone with awareness, with grace, with power, 
with commitment, yeah, yep. I'll fly like a girl any yep. day. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. I, I have been the first yeah. one to say the, the only venture uh, into competition I had was uh, back in the late 90s in sky surfing as a camera flyer uh, with a lady by the name of Mary Tortomasi flying the board. And she and I competed against uh, Greg and Tanya, uh, Craig and Tanya O'Brien uh, out of Paris Valley probably arguably one of the most amazing sky surfers ever and destroyed us. So very early on in the sport, I was used to having my ass kicked by a woman. So yeah. I never thought anything other than chances are if it's a girl skydiver that's been around for a while, she's probably better than me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm in a really fortunate position being at my, my latest four-way team, three girls and myself. Nice. And couldn't be happier. Yeah, yeah. real good. Especially well, after me, I was on a team with guys for pretty much my whole skydiving career. Uh, apart from the beginning, uh, we used to have um, uh, the, the very first eight-way team was five guys and three girls. Yeah, nice. And uh, but then, yeah. Do you find that uh, um, that when jumping with women, they pull a little bit of the ego out of it because guys are a little bit more ego-driven, I think, than women, which gets in yeah. the way. Generally, generally, I would totally agree with that, and it makes the experience a lot more fun. Sure. Well, and I always used to say that uh, in regard to AFF and especially uh, tandem students, that women generally handled it better than men because we're programmed as we grow up to always be tough and never show fear. And then, of course, when you're confronted with real fear, we don't know how to handle it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think just people are different anyway, you know, even sure. within genders and types, just people have different ways of dealing with this stuff. For yeah. sure. So what is your yeah. primary uh, focus in skydiving these days? Good one. So I have this blog called Future Proof Skydiving, and that's kind of where I got that interview with Camp Unity going. And but it came from a place of I want to be skydiving for as long as possible. So I have to look after myself, but also mm. I feel like we have to look after our sport. And uh, Future Proofing, a lot of people were like, yeah, you know, sustainable energy. And I just wanted to dive into if it was possible to actually run a fully sustainable drop zone. And now I don't mean just energy, sure. there's other areas. So I, I wanted to look in energy supply for sure. And uh, electric aircraft, hydrogen aircraft was one of the issues, one of the interviews, well, two interviews. I spoke to the guy from MagniX, who put the electric caravan together. Mm -hmm. And then I spoke to uh, Zero Avia, who were working on the hydrogen uh, platform. Um, but also I wanted to speak to um, a guy, Theo, who is, um, I don't know, an agronomist or something. He, um, biogas, basically okay. turning cow farts, cow poo, everything into energy. Sure. That farmers have been doing for hundreds of years. Sure. Uh, and how we can maybe use that to run something like a wind tunnel. And we actually sat down and worked out the power needs for it. You know, how much grass, how much food waste we would need to run a first time an hour in the tunnel or to run a VFS hour in the tunnel. Uh, and so uh, then from there, I spoke to a wind tunnel who are already, and there's a couple of them I found out since then, is only getting their energy supply from uh, sustainable energy supplies, solar oh, wow. wind. Yeah, I know Finland is one, and the one here in Emporia was for a long time. Um, then I spoke to a girl from the University of Stockholm who um, is all about uh, – they. Um, being Sweden, being Scandinavia, you know, they have a different look at things. For them, it, it's a must. They have to find a sustainable way to do the sport. Otherwise, their sport will not survive in sure. their current political climate. And so they, they were looking at ways that they could make the drop zone more sustainable. We talked about the effectiveness or rather ineffectiveness of carbon offsets as well. Um, 
I spoke to Rafael Domjan. He's the guy from Solar Stratos who mm. built a solar-powered airplane. The glider, he's yeah. Currently or not flying the glider, it. but... Did, no, it's did, a powered plane. They did that he around the world, it. didn't they? He jumped it. Did that. Well, he, they, he flew that. One of those things had been around the world, but right. he built one that they actually, that he jumped. He's a skydiver, the designer for as well. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, so I interviewed him. Uh, you can look at it. People can check this stuff out on the, on the blog. That stuff is still up there. Um, next one up, I, um, I spoke to Richard Burt, who was talking about people from the past. So I used to skydive with this guy in England back in the 80s. And we were kind of in and out of touch as I would go to Paris or not. He moved to the USA pretty early on. And became a fire captain, a fire chief uh, oh, nice. in Nevada. Okay. In Nevada, actually. Yeah. And he's got a fascinating story. What he does is, in times of um, like a uh, like a hurricane or something, there was in Puerto Rico. There was the hurricane that ripped through that place. Sure. He went there and he built local power stations based on solar panels. So he would use the fire station as a platform for which to create a microgrid that would then give energy to the local uh, environment. And then he would go from place to place and link in certain ones together. And we discussed how you could actually make a drop zone from you know, sustainable energy, that, that especially with the way a drop zone is set up, you've got the agriculture around, you've got other businesses around, you could all put stuff together uh, and sure. run that thing sustainably. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's 12 chats on that channel. And so that's one of the things that gets me out of bed in the morning is um, trying to understand what initiatives are out there that we could use to build a drop zone that could go into the future. And, and one of the other sides of it was the social aspect of it. And, and then also keeping instructors engaged too. We want instructors that are engaged, they're professional, you know, they're doing the right thing and they want to stay within the sport. Sure. Um, well, the, sustainab yes. this is, the sustainability thing is huge because I mean, looking down the road, eventually we have no choice. We're, uh, where yeah. it's very difficult to be a, a green skydiver and continue to do what we do the way we do it. You know, you and Cowie, um, I, I actually, his episode's going to be coming up a few days from when we're recording this. And we talk mm -hmm. about that as well, how he has a really tough time balancing his guilt over how much damage we're doing over what we do and wanting to find a way to balance that. And really, there's not, eventually, there's not going to be a choice because. The way we're doing things now, <laughs> I mean, it's unsustainable. It's totally, it's unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, the level of the amount of fuel that just I burn on a yearly basis, mm. flying jumpers up and down, is obscene. Um, mm. And you, you, you figure every drop zone around the world, especially as the world finally is kind of maybe opening their eyes to the fact that we need to change. It's a big mm -hmm. deal, you know. So having people like yeah. you that are the driving force of something like that is huge. Well, because I don't I'm not an expert. I don't pretend to be an expert in any of those fields. And it was totally selfish. Um, I just thought, you know what, like you were saying earlier, if I'm interested in something, I'm going to study it. So sure. I would look at some of the leaders, some initiatives that were going on. I'd read the research gate pieces on whatever technology we we're about to talk about. And it gave me a little education so that at least then when I chatted to them, you know, I had a little understanding. And, and my finding was that we can do it apart sure. from the aircraft. And, you know, we don't have an electric or hydrogen aircraft right now. We could run a fully sustainable drop zone. Sure. It, it's yeah. Well, you know, the big thing that I find... It's out there, technology today, basically. And the aircraft's not that far away. Um, no, I don't think it know, is. 
No, you've got right now. You've got SEF. You've got sustainable aviation fuel, which, as you know, provide it. it it's um, you know, there's no. Um, uh, it, it's in order to create it. Is there's no um, uh, damage to the environment? Sure. Obviously, when you burn it, there's a certain emission from it. Sure. But there's quite a few large commercial companies that are using a percentage of SAF, I believe, in their fuel tanks right now. Sure. Because uh, it's a drop drop in fuel. And I was just looking today. There's Diamond Aviation. Have you seen those guys? I have not. No. All right. There's Diamond Aviation, Ampere. There's a number of companies out there that are building electric aircraft that are looking for. 23 uh, federal um, uh, certification within the next year or so. Oh, wow. So we are really not that far away. Yeah. No, we are. Well, and that's kind of one of the amazing and also frustrating things is you imagine if we actually put real weight behind getting to or trying to get these things done, we'd have them done mm-hmm. much quicker than we are. But the cool we thing really is. We really wanted to. Oh, yeah. The cool thing is guys like you don't have to know everything about what's going on. They have to be able to assemble the people that do. That's the important thing, right? Elon Mm -hmm. Musk does not know how to build a rocket ship. He knows how to hire the people that know how to build a rocket ship and get them together and get them excited. And if you do the same thing with sustainable energy and and putting together electric aircraft and such, it's a matter of gathering all those people together that know what they're doing and getting them to collaborate, which is exactly the kind of thing you're doing. That's my goal right now is right now it's fact finding, it's mission finding. I definitely got sidetracked after COVID because I went right back into skydiving with a full vengeance. Sure. But now I've managed to let the the addiction is finding its <laughs> regular level again. A little you got bit. your fix. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm able to actually start diving in. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to reporting more and, and kind of aggregating the information, as you say, like sure. trying to get the people into one place. Sure. Yeah. Dude, that's amazing. So now, in regard to jumping, are you still doing instructing on a regular basis, or is it something that kind of happens now and then, or are you jumping quite regularly, or are you kind of diving into this stuff? All right. So if it had it my way, I'd jump every day, and um, literally, I, I'm still fully addicted to the sport, and sure. um, whether it's for myself with the wingsuit in or doing a little bit of free flying, I'm, I'm not really a free fly, but I love to play. Um, I have my four-way team. Uh, I'm still coaching flight one. That's kind of awesome. 50% of my work right now. So on the drop zone here in Emporia, or I'm just about to head to the Baltic States to uh, Latvia and Estonia, where I go during it for a couple of weeks to teach courses there. Awesome. Um, uh, and then the mutant, uh, you, you know about the mutant harness container. For sure. Yeah, that, that's been a real big thing for me uh, over the last few years. Um, about when Vince was still with us, he, I saw him jump in the mutant and uh, he came up to me one day on the drop zone and said, right then, you jump this now. And I'm like, okay. And he, <laughs> you know, typical Vince, he was full yep. of confidence and he was full of, he, he believed in me way more than I did. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I, I did some jumps on it, scared me a little bit, but I could fully see the potential. Hmm. And um, he basically, he kind of targeted me as someone that as he thought could help with the education of people in the system. So he said, I want you to be the one that kind of teaches people how to use it. And so with Ian Bobo, who had done a lot of jumps on the system, sure. Vince and myself, we basically, we sat in a room for a week and we designed a curriculum on how to teach people to use that system. Uh, and that's under the auspices of Flight One. So I'm doing a lot of work with UPT and Flight One um, with the teaching of, of how, to, how to use it, the curriculum side of it, training new ambassadors, training new people to, to teach people how to use it. Sure. But then... I'm very fortunate in that um, 
Licky's from UPT is kind of taking me underneath his wing. And we're working on the design aspect as well on making improvements to the rig. Oh, wow. Uh, as well. That's yeah. spectacular. Well, and, and Flight One, especially if you're dealing with the mutant, it's covering everything from the very beginnings all the way up to cutting edge. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I, like um, this week, I had a 101 course, which is the absolute basic course. Tomorrow, I have a 102 course. And by the way, the noise outside, it's, uh, they, they had to move Carnival from February to today. <laughs> <laughs> because of COVID restrictions back then. So can you hear that in the background? Yeah, a little bit, but not not distracting. It's good. It's not okay. I'm I'm glad. We'll keep talking then. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, the um the, the flight one, and then as you say, then the next day I'm on the I'm, I'm on a remote call to China teaching a guy how to use his mutant system because you know he can't leave China. Sure. And uh, it's yeah, so it, it, it does flight one takes me through the whole spectrum if you like of canopy instruction. Well and flight one and the prevalence now of canopy courses and the uh, the online presence of people pushing canopy coaching is an amazing thing and and uh, probably not even probably, definitely a huge reason why this last year was the lowest number of fatalities in USPA history, I think, uh, in modern history. It's been the lowest in how many years? Like, yeah. yeah. Which is absolutely incredible. So courses like that are absolutely invaluable, and they were something that didn't exist back when I was learning. So it's a wonderful thing to see. It really is. Spectacular. I'm really happy. I'm so happy to be part of this process, actually. I have to say, it makes me feel good when I know I'm teaching people how to, to have fun and be safe at the same time. For sure. As well. So yeah. somebody wants to uh, get on a course with you. Somebody wants to come jump with you. Somebody wants to come hear about uh, working with sustainable energy. How do they find you on social media? How do they track you down? All right. Well, it's Pete at flight1.com. That's my email address. So they can uh, get me through email. Uh, I'm on Instagram as uh, xlpete. And I have a blog on YouTube. It's Future Proof Skydiving with Pete Allen. That's um, awesome. So, yeah, th those are the ways that people can get hold of me for sure. Pete, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time, especially with Carnival going on right outside your door, to, to be sitting in here talking to me instead of out there enjoying it. So thank you so much. Uh, I would encourage people to definitely hit up your blog on YouTube, uh, talk to you about Flight One stuff, whether you're an absolute beginner or wanting to hop on a mutant. Uh, you know, you and Flight One are definitely the guys to talk to. Yeah, and also I'll be doing some load organizing at different places through the summer. So people are welcome to come join. It'd be lovely to skydive with you guys. Awesome. Pete, thank you so much, man. Have a wonderful day out there. Thank you, Dean. Appreciate it. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. By Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the Extreme Sports Collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com.
Com. Check out all the amazing standards as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to the fuckingpilot.net or the princesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around. Thank <laughs> you.